Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Matthew writes, And as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him over to the Gentiles to mock and flog and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. This is the third time in Matthew that Jesus has spoken about his death and resurrection. The first time is in Matthew 16, verse 21. Matthew writes, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So we see there that Matthew refers to what Jesus said but doesn't quote him directly. Then in chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, Matthew writes, While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. We obviously have more detail in the passage that we are looking at today. In Matthew 16 and 17, those events were still off in the future. They're, they're unspecified. It is began to show and, and is going to be. But now Jesus says, we're on our way. Now we are going, and it's going to happen very, very quickly. Uh, immediately after this, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up and asked that they be promoted. We will be talking about that in a couple of weeks. Following that, they were leaving Jericho. They had probably overnighted there and were heading into Jerusalem on the first day of the week, triumphant entry. So we're, we're right there. We're just a week or two away. Let's take a closer look at these, these verses. The, the first thing that I want you to notice is that this is a private conversation. He took the 12 aside by themselves and spoke to them. You know, in just a few weeks' time, six or eight weeks perhaps, the Holy Spirit would come upon them at Pentecost, the church would be born, and the age of gospel preaching would begin. It's the, the age that still exists now. And all of these things would be public. They would be openly declared, publicly declared, unashamedly declared. The apostles would, would teach them, for now, it was a private matter. Jesus is still in the process of preparing his men. It's very important to him that they all be with him. He took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. Judas, of course, had to be there because of the betrayal that was to happen. But it's important that the others are there as well. I think sometimes we've, we've got this idea in our minds that during these three years, None of the disciples were ever out of arm's length from Jesus. And I, I don't think that that really is practically what took place. Jesus made Capernaum his hometown. That's where James and John were from. It's where Peter and Andrew were from. I think it's very reasonable to think that when they were there, they were with their families. We're not even told that Jesus every single day was out, and there's possibilities that there were times when they may have been involved with other people for, an, for a half a day or for a day. They may have even gone to feasts separately. There was a point where 
Jesus' brothers in John 7 say to him, aren't you going up to the feast? And he says, no, you go. And we're not really told necessarily what was happening. It's very important for him that these men be here at this time. The reason for that is that they're going to be eyewitnesses. They're going to be eyewitnesses to his suffering and to his glory. And so I, I think the picture that we have is, is uh, they're getting ready to leave and he separates the 12 by themselves. And on the way, on the way to Jerusalem, he says, we're heading for Jerusalem and this is now what's going to happen. The uh, Jewish historian Josephus says that Jerusalem's population swelled to maybe a million during the great feasts. Even if that was a little exaggerated, it was half a million, it still means a, a population increase of hundreds of thousands. And many were coming from the north. They were walking down that Jordan Road, the Jordan River Road, which would have been the shortest distance from eastern Galilee, the Sea of Galilee area. And so there's tons of people on the road. Jesus seems to kind of isolate his disciples and then he, he gives them the details of what's going to happen to him for the first time. He says he's going to be betrayed. Uh, a number of versions say that he is going to be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. Delivered is a good word. That's an okay word. Just keep in mind that delivered here is not as in a box being delivered, but a prisoner being delivered. That's the sense. He's going to be delivered to... Uh, or betrayed to this. Uh, salvation comes to us through the death of Jesus on the cross. We understand that. But God works through means and through, through human agency. Quite often, Jesus didn't suddenly appear on the cross. There was a process, a series of steps to get to that point. And, and that's, those series of steps begins formally with with the betrayal, with Judas betraying him. Jesus would be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. Before this, he had had no contact with the chief priests. The closest he had come is in John chapter 7. The chief priests there are trying to arrange for his arrest, but there, it doesn't say that they had contact with him. He's had a lot of contact with the scribes and the Pharisees. Now the chief priests have to come into mind because, of course, Jesus is the Lamb of God and the priests have to be involved with the offering of the Lamb. He would be condemned to death by religious leaders. Uh, Israel's rejection of the Messiah would be made abundantly clear in this action. And so we need to keep in mind that this is not a huge change for them. Israel was never known for their faithfulness. Even after they had been freed from bondage in Egypt, before they'd crossed the Red Sea, they were complaining and accusing. God held them almost by force to faithfulness at times. They were simply not willing, as a rule, to be faithful and obedient. But he gave them these Old Testament sacrifices that become shadows and pictures of what Jesus would accomplish. And so it becomes necessary for them to abandon him. It becomes necessary for them to condemn him to death. Who would put Jesus to death if Israel had embraced him? 
without regard or with, without question. If every single Jew and all of the leadership had said, yes, this is our Messiah, this is our king, we worship him, where would be the, 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 the means of his crucifixion? That crucifixion was necessary. The death of Jesus on the cross didn't become saving for us because the other plan failed. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. It was always God's purpose and only God's purpose that his son would die as a sacrifice. Now Paul makes the point in Romans 11 that the Jews were cut off for the sake of the Gentiles. And he goes on to say that God is able and willing to graft them in again, not through the restoration of the old covenant, not if they become obedient back to the temple and the sacrifices, but through the restoration of the new covenant. Jesus says that he would be handed over to the Gentiles. It's the same word as as delivered or betrayed in verse 18. Handed over to the Jews, then handed over to the Gentiles. So from a practical point of view, the, the Jews could not legally execute anyone. Roman law didn't permit it. They could punish, but they could not kill. The times that they did, such as when they stoned Stephen in Acts chapter 7, that was a mob action. And technically it was murder. It was not a legal execution. And so only the Romans could legally execute someone. That's the practical point of view. But speaking biblically and theologically, the Gentiles had to take part in Jesus' death. In the Old Testament, when a man or a woman brought a sin offering to the temple, they would lay their hands on the head of that offering either in the, in the moment that it was killed or right before it was killed. And the sense was of ordaining this animal to carry their sins. There's a recognition that our sin requires a death. I owe God my death for my sin. People often try and say, I, I need to pay back God for what I've done, so I'm going to give more, I'm going to go to church more, I'm going to stop swearing, I'm going to do this. The only payment for sin that will satisfy God is death. He's made that clear. And so the Old Testament picture is to bring the lamb, to bring the bull, whatever the animal is, to lay your hands on its head. And in a sense, you're saying, I ordained this animal to bear my death. And God says, I'll take that as a deferral of your your payment. You still owe me your death. But I'll, I'll allow you to substitute this animal's death temporarily. But one day you're going to have to pay me. When the Jews condemned Jesus to death, the nation of Israel, now think about this, the nation of Israel was laying its hands on the head of that that lamb. And when they handed him over to the Romans, the Gentile world laid their hands on the head of that lamb. And so in the death of Christ and his betrayal, Jews and Gentiles alike offered up the lamb of God. Jesus says that he would be flogged or mocked and he would be flogged. According to Roman law, flogging was legally required before a crucifixion. Being crucified was such a cruel and brutal way to die that even the worst, chemi- worst criminal- criminals were flogged to bring them much closer to death so that their suffering would not be as prolonged. Nero a generation later would crucify countless people without flogging 
and it would take them days to die. The worse the flogging, the quicker the death. After the flogging was over, the victim would be given a bit of time to recover before being taken to be crucified, and they took advantage of that time to mock and abuse Jesus even more. Then he would be crucified. Crucifixion was not uniquely Roman. It was not invented by them. It preexisted them. But they used it frequently. It was their preferred method of dealing with non-Roman citizens who committed certain crimes. Now, women and Roman senators could not be crucified. They could only be beheaded. As a rule, Roman soldiers were not crucified unless they deserted. But the rest could be. The crucifixion is not only a brutal death, it's, it's perhaps the worst possible way to die. I've, I've seen pathologists and, and medical doctors say that. It was also a very public death and a humiliating death. Nobody was crucified in secret. There was no closed room where a living person walked in and a few minutes later a dead person was quietly wheeled out. The victim in crucifixion would be stripped naked, which is almost never depicted in art. There was no single method of crucifixion. We're used to the idea of, a, of the cross beam, which it appears Jesus was crucified on because he carried that piece. Others were crucified with their arms straight above them on a single pole. Some were crucified upside down, as was Peter. Some were nailed through their hands and their feet. Others were nailed through other parts of their body. Some were impaled through the intestinal tract as they hung on the cross. It was such a horrific way to die that the Roman orator Cicero, he died 40 years before Jesus was born, said the very mention of a cross should be far removed not only from a Roman citizen's body, but his mind, his eyes, and his ears. It was so ugly that the Roman citizenry were terrified of it, even though they were protected from it. No wonder Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that preaching Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Who would believe that somebody who had suffered crucifixion could be a king or victorious or God? It didn't end with the crucifixion. On the third day, Jesus says he would be raised up. Jesus almost never spoke of his death without mentioning his resurrection. I know of one place, I believe it's in the Gospel of John, where he makes a comment in, in the upper room that that night he would be killed. But he almost never mentioned his crucifixion without mentioning the resurrection because the atonement is not complete without the resurrection. Jesus did not come to simply die for sinners. He came to live for sinners. He came to live for sinners before his death in obedience and faithfulness to earn righteousness. And he came to live after his death so that we would have the promise of eternal life. And we would know that death could not hold us. Sin and death were given every opportunity to destroy Jesus. The devil himself came to tempt him. James says that we don't need an external tempter. 
we carry it within ourselves. Let no one say when he was tempted, I'm being tempted by God. We are tempted when we are enticed by our own desires. Jesus had no sinful desires. He had no sin nature. The temptation had to come from outside of himself. And in order to give the devil the best possible opportunity, Jesus fasted for 40 days. He was in such bad physical shape that angels had to come and minister to him after the devil was done. He didn't give in. And death was given every opportunity to destroy him. He was brutally beaten, tortured, and crucified. But death could not hold him. Death could not overcome him. The book of Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross and despised the very idea that the cross was shameful. There was nothing more shameful than crucifixion. And he utterly turned it around and said, this is the greatest sign of love that exists. The greatest act of love At the Last Supper, he said to his disciples, this is my body, this is my blood, and it's given for you. It's not shed to no purpose. He didn't die for no purpose. It's given for you. So he despised the shame of the cross, and when he rose from the dead, he rose with those wounds intact. When he appears to his disciples in Luke chapter 24, he says, see my hands and my feet. You can see the wounds. He said to Thomas, put put your hand in my side. And don't be unbelieving, but be believing. We're used to all of that. That's, That's typical, but we don't often think about the fact that he does this as the son of man. When the word son of is used as part of a formal title, it it indicates a representation. So Judas is called the son of perdition or destruction. That that tells us that Judas is representative of every person who rejects Christ, every person who kind of believes but then turns away. By the way, the Antichrist is called the son of destruction. In 1 Thessalonians, it's the same term. The magician Elymas tried to prevent Sergius Paulus from believing in Acts chapter 13. Paul said, you're the son of the devil. It's exactly what the devil does when the gospel is preached. He comes and he tries to steal it away, just as Jesus says he does in Matthew 13, in the parable of the sower. Well, Jesus is the Son of God, which tells us that he's the full and perfect representation of everything that God is. Do you want to know who the Father is? Philip says, show us the Father, and it's enough for us in John 14. And Jesus says, have I been with you all this time, and you still don't know me, Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That Jesus is also the Son of Man, which means he's the full and perfect representation of all that mankind was created to be and has never been. He's the only one. Tempted by the devil but never sinned, truly perfect as his Father in heaven was perfect. Why does it matter that it's the Son of Man dying? On the cross. 
because human sin requires a human death. The reason that the blood of, of bulls and goats can't take away sin is that bulls and goats have not sinned. Taking away human sin requires a human death. That's what God requires for our sin, is our death. There has to be a substitute death by someone who perfectly stands in our place. The, the provision of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament is God saying to his people, and in a sense to you and me, I'll allow you to give me an IOU. The very act of killing this animal and sacrificing it is a recognition that you owe me your death, that a human death has to be provided. But it also implies that it's God's IOU. He didn't simply carry out their destruction and judgment immediately. Instead, he gave them a way of deferring that payment. And there's a promise inherent in that, in that deferral where God says, I will provide the sacrifice, just as he provided the ram for Isaac when Abraham went to offer him. The sacrifice could not be an animal. It had to be a human being, and not just a human being. It had to be a man. It was a man who sinned. Adam, it had to be a man who would rescue us. It was a man who sent and plunged the whole human race into death and judgment. It had to be a man who, if you will, will plunge his children into life and righteousness. So in the fullness of time, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he did all of this voluntarily, willingly, gladly, happily, as an act of love. No one could overcome him, so he surrendered himself to arrest. He surrendered himself to those show trials. He surrendered himself to the mockery and the abuse of the soldiers. He surrendered himself to carrying his own cross to Calvary. He surrendered himself to crucifixion. And when the moment came, death could not overcome him, so he even had to yield up his own spirit. He even had to yield up his own spirit because death could not take him. If he had not yielded up his spirit, he could remain on the cross till this day, suffering. And on the third day, he took up his life again. The grave had no more power over him than a little bit of dust floating in the air. For Jesus to, to yield up his life was no more difficult then you or I taking off a shoe. And taking up his life was no more difficult than putting a shoe back on. It's impossible for us. When death takes a hold of us, as it one day will, it will keep us. We will be powerless over it. We can't prevent it. God knows the, the, the number of our days, the number of our minutes... Storms can kill us, demons can harass us, enemies can, can, can found us. Satan prowls around look like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but nothing could overcome Jesus. So did he cheat? Was, was that a cheat? No, it wasn't a cheat. He suffered more, I think, by surrendering himself than we do by being overcome. Because there's an end to our overcoming. There's a point where we can't bear it anymore. And death wins. But Jesus had to bear it until it was done and then willingly surrender himself 
And he did all of this as the Son of Man. The perfect sinless representation of all that God is as the Son of God and all that mankind was created to be and has never been. As, as we bring this home, I, I just want to remind you that the Son of Man died for the sins of man. His death was a perfect sacrifice. Complete. Full. It's over. I came across a quote this week from a Presbyterian pastor named Christopher Love from a sermon he preached in 1651, so he's not on YouTube. It was transcribed after his death by leading pastors in London. Uh, just for the sake of full disclosure, Christopher Love was executed for trying to, bring a, uh, trying to get Charles II back in power. And uh, Oliver Cromwell didn't take kindly to that. The sermon, this is the title of the sermon, just in case you're inclined to not think that I come, with, come up with creative titles. This is the title of his sermon, The, De the Dejected Soul's Cure, Tending to Support Poor Drooping Sinners with Rules, Comforts, and Cautions in Several Cases. That just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> this is what he said. Are your sins great? The mercies of God are greater. Do your sins deserve great punishments, even eternal death? The death of Jesus Christ and the merit of Christ are of infinite value to merit life, even eternal life. Are your sins the sins of man? The satisfactions of Christ are the satisfactions of God. Do your sins merit the frowns of God? Oh, but Christ's death merit and purchase the favor of God. In a word, Christ's person exceeds your person. So his obedience infinitely exceeds your disobedience. Though there is great guilt in sin, there is greater mercy and merits in Christ. For as by Adam there came sin and death, so by Jesus Christ there came righteousness and life. There is not as much guilt in sin as there is merit in Christ. There is not as much guilt in sin to condemn as there is in merit in Christ to save. Though there are more tears for you to shed over your sin, there is no more blood for Jesus to shed for your forgiveness. Therefore, do not be excessively cast down by your sin. Do not be excessively guilty in your sin. Be excessively joyful because of your forgiveness. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the kindness that you have given us. The fact that Jesus died on the cross is familiar to us. It's not new. What he suffered is, is really not new. But we often don't consider that he did this as the Son of Man representing us. We so often don't consider the perfections of his offering. We often don't consider that he's infinitely greater than we are. 
His righteousness is infinitely greater than our unrighteousness. His merit is infinitely greater than our sins. And so, Lord, we continue to plead Christ. And there is yet tears for us to shed over our sins. There is time for conviction. But I ask that through your word and by the reminder of your spirit, you would protect us from being depressed or despondent. That we would remember the greatness of your love and your kindness to us. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I ask that as you show them the reality of their sins, that you would also persuade them of the complete perfection and abundance of love and favor and grace in Jesus Christ. And help them by your spirit to cry out to him in faith and be set free. We thank you for this day. We lift up those who are not with us today and ask your blessing to be upon them. And we give you thanks for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.